0: The sermon text for today is from the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Listen as I read God's word. Spiritual fullness in Christ. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. Here ends the reading.
1: Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. If I haven't met you, uh, my name is Matt. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. Wow, this is like a super music stand, super tough to move. Okay, there we go. Um, Like I said, good to be with you. I'm really looking forward to getting into uh, the book of Colossians with you this morning and the truths that it holds for us grounded in the gospel. Uh, Let's take a moment to pray before we dive into this, and we'll take a look at what the Lord has for us today. So, Father, we are so grateful to be able to come before you this morning and hear from your word. We're grateful that you have not left us in our brokenness, but you have spoke to us with clarity. And so, Lord, we desire to hear clearly from you this morning. Please glorify yourself in this time. Please lead us to where you desire us to be. And by your spirit, would you open our eyes to your truths? Would you help us to see what you want us to see in this text? And would you move in us to make us a holy people because you yourself are holy? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing our sermon series that we call Gospel Foundations. So what we're doing is we're looking at the essential uh, main truths of the gospel and the way that we're approaching this uh, is by looking at the whole storyline of scripture. So we're starting all the way at the beginning and we're working our way through and showing how the Bible tells us one whole story that climaxes in the person and work of Jesus and God's rescue mission in his son. We're going through that Bible story, we're highlighting certain portions of it, making sure that we're saying, okay, this is how it points to Jesus. This is what it is showing us about who God is and how he loves us and how he desires us to respond to what he has done for us. So we've started with creation. We we looked at that God exists, that he is a good and loving creator, that he has made everything, that he has called us into relationship with himself. We looked at how we as human beings fit into that creation, that we are God's image bearer that we are called to represent him to the world around us as we love him and, and love others. We've looked at the, the rebellion and fall of human beings asking the question, why is our world the way it is? If God is a perfect and loving and good creator, why is our world so broken? Well, the answer to that is because of us, because we have rejected God in sin. And as a result, we live in a very broken world. And we've tracked this all the way to last week where we started to press into the person and work of Jesus where Pastor John talked about what Jesus was doing when he was up there dying on that cross. And today we're gonna kind of build on this idea a little bit more as we see that God has come to rescue us in Jesus. Now you might ask the question, okay, why are we going through gospel foundations? Like, How did we get to the point of saying, okay, this is what we think we should be doing as a church community? And there's a number of reasons, obviously, that we're going through this, but, but one of the reasons is that we believe that the gospel is indeed what it claims to be, that it is good news for our world, that it is the news that our world needs to hear. We believe with the apostle Paul in, in Romans, where he says that it is the power of God for salvation to all people. And so we want to be bold in proclaiming those truths, and if we're going to serve as Jesus' ambassadors, then we want to be fluent in being, being able to articulate those truths to the world around us. So we're taking the time to be grounded in the gospel. Because here's the thing. We are always going to be grounded in something. It's not if we're ground or what we're grounded, or if, it's what we're grounded in say. We, by definition, are people that are, we're, we're worshipers. We, we like to worship different things and people. The, the initial plan was that we would worship God and God alone, and yet we find in our brokenness that our hearts are drawn to all kinds of people and things, and we need to call ourselves back in repentance to the God who loves us and has given Jesus to die for us. Now, sometimes we ground ourselves in things unintentionally, But sometimes it is very intentional. We invest ourselves in things, and sometimes those things are bad, and sometimes those things are good, but all in all, they must ultimately be secondary to Jesus. We want to be nourished by the truths of the gospel above all else. And I think if we're going to look at one book that calls us back to digging our roots in deeply to our relationship with Jesus, it is the book of Colossians. Now, we're kind of jumping into the middle of the book today, so I want to backtrack a little bit and just consider, okay, what is the book of Colossians? because it's actually really interesting. And Colossians is not a book, it is a letter. And it's written by the Apostle Paul in the early 60s AD. And he's actually writing to a church community that he had never met He had only helped to plant this church through a a secondary person named Epaphras, who was a friend of his, and Epaphras is giving him an update that this church is actually doing really, really well. And so Paul's excited about this, and he decides he's going to write a letter to this church to encourage them to continue to be faithful to Jesus and celebrate with them what God is doing among them. But he also finds out from Epaphras that, that this church is facing certain cultural pressures around them. And they're falling into certain tendencies that are informed by certain false teachings that have made their way to the city. And one of the things that makes the book of Colossians so challenging is that scholars are not all unified in what they actually think is going on in this church. What is this false teaching that the Colossians are dealing with? We're not entirely sure, but we do know some of the tendencies they're facing and we do know some of the issues that are popping up that is informing this false teaching. One of the things that they're wrestling with is feeling a pressure to appease certain spiritual forces so that their spiritual walk with God is not hindered. I know that sounds kind of weird. Paul presses into this when he uses language like elemental spiritual forces or the rulers and the powers and the authorities. This is him referring to spiritual forces that the church is kind of afraid of because they think they might get in the way of their walk with Jesus. The other thing that they are worried about is that they might have to obey certain Jewish religious expressions. Some of us know this as obeying the law of Moses. So there's all kinds of things that they're feeling pressured to do so that nothing would get in the way of their relation with God and when Paul sees this brilliantly he kind of diagnoses that there is a huge threat to be had here he sees that there is a threat that they might feel like they need to supplement their faith in Jesus with these other things and in effect they might end up treating Jesus as if he wasn't enough and if they start to go down that path Paul recognizes that they are going to make shipwreck of their faith and it's not going to be good. And so he writes this letter to encourage them and to try the, to call them back to grounding themselves thoroughly in the gospel. Now, as we think about that, not all of us are, are in that kind of religious situation. You might hear about some of the stuff that they're wrestling with and feel like, okay, I don't really uh, relate to feeling that tendency. They're operating out of maybe a more supernatural worldview than our culture often operates out of. So it might sound strange to us to be thinking about appeasing supernatural forces or elemental spiritual forces or however you might look at it. But I think that we also suffer from a similar tendency if we're not careful to try and supplement Jesus with different things and the way that we do this is when we say jesus plus blank equals the a, a, a our uh, confirmation will say for what it looks like to walk with true spiritual maturity. So when we look at people around us and we say, okay, I know that you claim to be a Christian. I know that you've placed your faith in Jesus, but you don't pass this test. You don't vote the way that I vote. You don't believe this secondary theological doctrine that I do. You don't serve in the way that I do. You must not be a mature Christian follower. We are following into the trap. We are, we are letting ourselves run rampant with this idea that it's Jesus. Jesus plus something else. We are supplementing Jesus with other things and we do not want to do this. But do not mishear me. Let me clarify something for a minute. Many of these things that we do along with following Jesus are good things, okay? We don't want to abandon them altogether but I think what Paul is getting at here is that everything we would add on to our walk with Jesus needs to be second. And it is very, very dangerous if we go down the road on adding things onto our dependence upon Jesus. And here's why it's dangerous. Because what we begin to ground ourselves in is going to be the thing which shapes us. We saw this in our last sermon series when we were thinking about the book of Exodus when we see the Israelites and they begin worshiping the golden calf. The text starts to describe that they start to act like a calf that, it, that is unbroken, that it has not been domesticated and trained, if you will. There's a real reality that we will begin to look like what we worship and we want to look like Jesus and nothing else, amen? So we want to be very careful about what we're grounding ourselves in. So Paul begins his letter this morning by saying this, that just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So he begins by saying, you received the gospel truth that Epaphras brought to you, that I taught to Epaphras, which was passed on to me. The essential truths of who Jesus is and what he has done. And he says, those truths, those are the ones that you need to continue to walk in. But if you are going to do this, here's what you need to do verse 8, you need to exercise a real level of discernment, and this is the way that he says that they have to exercise discernment by rejecting that which depends upon human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces. So, there's the two things they're dealing with the, the law of Moses and trying to appease other spiritual beings. And they're saying, and Paul's saying, you can't depend on them, you must depend on Christ. This is how he says we diagnose what is real, true teaching. Does this teaching depend completely upon Jesus? Does the message that you're hearing throw itself at the feet of Jesus? If it doesn't, reject it. Which leads Paul to, to respond to a question that he anticipates. And it's a question that we all need to wrestle with ourselves. It's the main thing we're going to focus on today. It's this question Why? Should I depend upon Christ alone? Why should I do it? That's something we all need to wrestle through. For some of us who have been Jesus followers for a long time, sometimes I think we don't take the time to wrestle through, okay, we've given our lives to Jesus, but is Jesus really worthy? Why should I depend on him? Why is he greater than than everything else that the world is throwing at me? Why is he greater than all of the other teachings that I'm hearing thrown at me? Why should I depend upon Christ alone? This is where we're going to focus, and Paul gives us two answers this morning. He says, first and foremost, that Christ is not a stepping stone, but he's the cornerstone of spiritual life. Let me say that again. He says that the reason we should depend upon Christ alone is because Christ is not a stepping stone, but the cornerstone of spiritual life. In verses 9 and 10, he says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. "'And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. "'He is the head over every power and authority.'" So Paul dives into things utilizing some of this fullness language. Most scholars believe that uh, the, the false teachers that were coming into Colossae at the time, they were using this language of fullness. So Paul kind of riffs off it and puts it back on them and makes a very clear point. He says that Jesus is worthy of our dependence because he is not like other spiritual beings that, that you need to feel like you're seeking to appease for spiritual growth. He says that Jesus is not a means to attain spiritual spiritual just spiritual fullness in God he says that Jesus is God in all of his fullness does that make sense he says that you're not trying to use Jesus to get somewhere else he says that when you come to Jesus you've come to the place where you're meant to be you come to the place where you were created to be and you don't have to seek to attain any more spiritually because he's not just another rung on the ladder he is the one at the very top And because of who Jesus is, and because he has brought us to himself, he says to this church, you are already full. Look at at verse 10 with me. He says, in Christ, you've been brought to fullness. It is past tense. There's nothing more they need to do to be brought to fullness in the future. They have been brought to it already. They do not need to be dependent upon or fearful of any other spiritual power. What Paul's kind of communicating here to use an illustration is that to go to these spiritual beings instead of to Jesus in order to grow spiritually would be like us going to the intern in order to move up the corporate ladder when we're already brought to the top position. We would be going to something or somebody lower. There's no need to do it. God's word says here that the CEO, in effect Jesus himself, has brought us to the top and has seated us with him, as Ephesians says, in the heavenly realms. And there is no threat to that position by anyone or anything. He continues to riff on this a little bit in verse 15, if you look at that with me, where he says that, uh, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, being God, made a public spectacle of them, being the spiritual powers, triumphing over them by the cross. So Paul says to them, just in case you are fearful, just in case there's any qualms in you about those spiritual powers impacting you, he says that they have been thoroughly dealt with in Jesus. They have been brought to nothing, and they have no power to accuse you before the creator anymore, because in Jesus, you have been made perfectly righteous when he died in our place. Now, as we think about this, like I said, some of this sounds pretty strange. It actually sounds pretty strange to me to sort through these categories of elemental spiritual forces, different spiritual powers, the rulers and the powers and the authorities. It's kind of weird for us to think about. But I think that we at times can fall prey to a similar fear, at least that they have. And it's a fear that if we don't do certain spiritual practices or do certain spiritual rituals, that things between God and I are going to be severely hindered. So maybe if I don't pray in the right way, or maybe if I don't pray enough Maybe if I don't have my quiet time, I'm afraid that my walk with God is going to be severely hindered. And don't mishear me, those are all good things that contribute to a a healthy walk with God. But in Christ, what it says here is that you are spiritually full. And God no longer looks at you with anger for your sin. It says that Christ is our propitiation, meaning that he has assuaged God's anger. And when God looks at us, no matter what, if we are in Christ, God looks at us with approval and we are dearly beloved children because of Jesus. So why depend upon Christ alone? Because he's not the stepping stone but he's the cornerstone of spiritual life. He's the one at the top and he has brought us to himself. But If you recall what I said, this church is not only feeling pressure to assuage spiritual forces, but to fall prey to some uh, Jewish religious practices as if what they had done in placing their faith in Jesus was not enough. But Paul responds to this in verse 11 and 12 when he says, in him, being Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in Baptism, in which you are also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So the second reason that we read that we should depend upon Christ alone is that Christ has done all the work that's necessary for new life in God. Christ has done all the work that is necessary for new life in God. Now Paul uses the illustration here of circumcision, and I think he uses it very intentionally here. And here's why: because they are feeling pressure from a group of Jewish individuals to start obeying the law. And one of the main standout cultural expressions between the Gentiles, meaning the Colossians, and the Jewish community at the time would have been that the Jews were circumcised and the Colossians were not And they would have been feeling pressure to say, if we really are the people of God, then maybe we should do this. Maybe we should do what all of the Jewish community is doing. Maybe we need to become Jewish before we become one of uh, the Jewish Messiah's sheep, being Jesus himself. But Paul picks up on a theme that runs all the way through the Old Testament that says this, that God wants to do more than just change us on the outside. He wants to change us from the inside out. He wants to take our hearts, and as Deuteronomy would say, God wants to circumcise our hearts. He wants to cut away that which is dishonoring to him so that it might die and we might gain new hearts and be raised to new life in him. So Paul says that their hearts need to be circumcised, and this is what he says to them, that in Jesus you were also circumcised with a circumcision not by human hands, not something outwardly, that your whole self, ruled by the flesh, not just Outwardly, but inward and outwardly, was, as he says, circumcised in Jesus. And here's what he means he means to tell this church that in Christ, everything that they need to be done to become one of God's people is already accomplished for them. There is no more necessary work that they need to do to prove themselves to God, or to these people around them, that they belong to the Jewish God of Israel here. Now, he's not saying the law is bad, don't obey it. He's not saying that at all. He would actually say that the the law is good. It it is the epitome of, of truth and God's goodness in expression to Israel. But what he's saying is there's nothing left to prove. It is foolish for us to try to think that there are certain things that we can do in order to look better before God and to prove ourselves to one another when Christ has died on the cross for us. He goes even further in verses 13 to 14 to build on this, and he says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, some of us might read that spiritually, but for these Colossians, this is very real for them. God made you alive with Christ, He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So he says that when Christ dies on that cross, not only are you fulfilled in the law in him, but you are also uh, forgiven for the ways that you have rejected God's law. Because this is important for us to recognize that Christ did not come to just do what we did not have time to check off on our spiritual checklists. The Bible actually uses way stronger language for that. The Bible says that we are not just neutral and are just doing our best to try and check off these things that God has told us to do. The Bible says that we, in fact, hate God. And apart from some intervention, we will continue to hate God unless God moves in some amazing, amazing way. And Paul says when Christ is up there on that cross, that is God moving on our behalf. And as Christ dies... It says that our hearts are circumcised. We become a people who don't hate God, but love him. And for the ways that not only have we not done God's law, but for the ways that we looked at God's law and what he wants us to do and said, God, I'm not doing that. I refuse to do that. We are forgiven. We are fulfilled and we are forgiven. Christ's saving work, according to Colossians, is God's literal act of pulling us and our dead selves out of the grave. With this result... That we might be tempted by sin, but we are no longer enslaved to our sin. We might feel called to obey the law in response to what God has done, but we do not need to obey the law in order to be saved or in order to prove to anyone that we belong to him. You might feel the weight of your sin crushing you under its weight, but what it says here. It says that it's been taken away, but that, that doesn't do justice to how strong the Greek is here. It says that that IOU, the chirographon the, the in Greek, the charge of our, legal, our our legal indebtedness that we have before God where we owed him our lives because we have rejected him, it says that it was wiped out. It would be as if that legal contract was thrown into the fire and destroyed and we are made right before our maker. It is very powerful language where Paul looks up at the cross with Christ dying on it and it says the charge king of the Jews above it and what Paul sees is the charge against us that says sinner being destroyed as Christ is put in our place. The argument here is is brilliant, that there is no more practical works of the law, there's nothing we practically need to do, and there are no spiritual ritual practices that must be done in order to receive the fullness that God has for us, because Christ is God's fullness that has been given to us. And in him, we are already received into God's kingdom as beloved, victorious children, There's a saying that we have uh, in our culture that I think relates well to kinda the big point that's being made here. It's, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? If it, it ain't broke, don't fix it. I think that they feel a temptation that we feel at times to be intrigued by that which is new, or, or different. Sometimes you feel the call to change certain things, but Paul says this is not the thing Colossians. This is not the thing, church, that we are called to change. Because sometimes we find that when we change things, when we tinker with certain things, it actually ends up worse than where we had started. One of the ways that this plays out in my life is uh, with one of my hobbies. So one of my main hobbies that I do, you might see me playing worship sometimes on guitar, is playing guitar and building guitars and upgrading guitars and, and, and screwing with them. And sometimes what happens, because I'm such an amateur at this, is I will be doing some work on a guitar and about halfway through a project, I will realize this was not a good idea to take. I'm in way over my head. And so I have to follow through because I already started the project and I get done and I realize, wow, I really botched that. I really ruined that scenario. And I think in a similar way, Paul is trying to be clear to them that although that these teachings, these tendencies, these pressures from the culture that they're feeling might be different Maybe it's causing them to question their faith. Maybe they even find these different teachings to be attractive to them. What he says is if you fall prey to them, if you allow them to take you captive, as he says in verse eight, more literally to, to kidnap you, it's plundering language. If you allow them to take hold of your life, it's not gonna result in flourishing for you or the community around you. It is only gonna lead to ruin. So he calls them to persist in the gospel truth about Jesus, because in Christ, we lack nothing before God. This is his answer to why should we depend upon Christ alone? Because in Christ, we lack absolutely nothing before God. There is nothing to be added. There is nothing that we could ever accomplish that could add to his work. Because in Christ, it says that God has reconciled heaven and earth. Every spiritual and earthly power has been reconciled in Christ, to God himself. And it is all placed under Christ's rule. This is what Jesus says after he comes back from the dead. In, in Matthew 28, he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And this means that if we belong to Christ, that we stand before our maker, not with a cup that's half empty. God does not look at us and say, you're kind of all right. You, you might have a little bit more work to do. No, no, we stand before our maker with a cup that is overflowing. Christ has done more than enough for us and we rejoice in that. So here's my, uh, my invitation to you for how to respond. It's the same encouragement that he gives to this church here. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. It literally says, continue to walk in him. Continue to live this out. Rooted and built up in him. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thanksgiving. That is our call this morning. To be rooted in Christ and to persist in him no matter what. No matter what we face. No matter what we feel. No matter what circumstances we are undergoing. Stick to Christ because in him we have been brought to fullness, as Paul says. As we transition to communion this morning, this is one of the ways that we really tangibly declare that we have sworn allegiance to Jesus and Jesus alone, that we declare that he is enough for us and that he is our king. If you're not a Jesus follower, I wanna encourage you to to place your faith in Jesus and the work that he has done for you, the, the life that he lived on your behalf that you could never live, the death that we all deserve because of our sin and the resurrection that he underwent in order to seal the deal that through faith in him, we not only experience the eternal life and the life to come that God has for us, but we begin to experience that abundant life now A life that will never end and a life that not only blesses us, but blesses the world around us. And for those of us who are Jesus followers, I want us to just take a moment to consider that in Jesus, we are not only saved from something, but we're saved to something. It says that we are saved from certain death and eternity apart from God. Certainly, absolutely, amen to that, 100%. But it also says here in verse 15, it says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, God made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What it says here is not that that God has just disarmed them in Jesus and we can just kind of make it through. That's not what it says. It says that, that God has uh, achieved victory over them and in him we are not only just okay, we not only are just gonna make it, but we are victorious in Christ. We have won because God has won, and we are saved to a community who celebrates that victory together, namely on Sunday mornings, but hopefully throughout the rest of the week and throughout our lives. It may not always look like we are victorious. Certainly we face challenges in our life, but God's promise is that he has won, and because he has won, we have won, and there is nothing to fear, There is nothing to do, and there is nothing that can separate us from God's love. So we need not seek to add to that work, but to relish in it and to respond with worship. So let's take a minute to just sit under that and recognize what Christ has done for us, and then we'll respond with a a prayer of confession, turning our hearts to him. So let's take a minute here. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and in word and in deed by the things that we've done and the things that we have left undone. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we confess. Not only have we neglected areas of obedience to you, but there's ways that we have known that we have been called to follow you and obey, and we have said, I ain't about that. I'm not gonna do that. We willingly choose to reject you. And if left to our own devices, Lord, this would be a downward spiral resulting in death, resulting in something that you do not want for us, eternal separation from you. And yet, Lord, we rejoice in the fact of what this text says this morning, that in Jesus, we are lacking nothing Before you, That when you look at us, you approve of us because we stand in Christ's righteousness. That there is nothing that we can do more to make you approve of us. That there's no ritual or religious expression that we need to do to earn our way to you. We are simply called to sit under your glory and under Jesus' work and to just relish in that. To recognize that we are not good enough, but Jesus is. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we have forgotten that. Forgive us for the ways that we have rejected that truth, that we have believed the lie that there's something more that we must do. Forgive us for the ways that we've sought to supplement Jesus with other things. Forgive us for the ways that we've judged one another by things other than their dependence upon Jesus and Jesus alone. Lord, please help us to come to Christ with open hands, realizing that we do not add anything to him but that he is the one at the top of the spiritual food chain and all things have been made subject to him. Lord, in your mercy, please forgive what we have been. Please help us to amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we might delight in your will and walk in your ways following you wherever you may lead us to the glory of your name and all God's people said, amen.